I'll keep your Bibles open there at uh, John's 18. In the early days of the movies, obviously before my time, the audience had to have the flow of the action explained to them. And this was done usually by the insertion of a caption, usually a blank screen with captions in white letters describing the next phase of the action. Cowboy movies were all the rage at that per- in that period, and uh, the most popular of them, the hero, would be found fighting a gang of desperados who'd ambushed a stagecoach in the mountains somewhere. The screen would go black, then the caption would read, Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Then the next picture that came on was in the ranch house, and there was the beautiful maiden, all gagged and bound, and tied to a chair with sticks of dynamite underneath the chair. There would be a close-up of her heavily, uh, heavily darkened eyes, wide with fear and despair. Then the screen would go black again, and a new caption would appear. Help is on the way. Then the rider on his white horse came galloping along on his white horse, ready to rescue the damsel in distress. It was a very exciting thing, at least it was for the moviegoers then. Now, moviegoing now, of course, is a different art altogether. We're used to following two different storylines, that one in the same time. In fact, you can actually uh, find things now that are done in real time, Uh, Jack Bauer being the obvious hero of the moment. And I haven't mentioned Jack Bauer for some years now. You'll be thinking I've gone off him, but I haven't. Uh, and there's a new Jack Bauer coming up in the, recent, in the near future. But that kind of action thing, that was an irrelevant point. That action thing follows several parallel stories, but related stories. In this little section that we're looking at this evening, we're actually following two parallel stories. Stories that are going on at one and the same time. The action surrounds Peter on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand. Both stories are actually happening within sight of each other. It's possible for Jesus to see Peter in the distance, near distance, and for Peter to see Jesus in the near distance. Peter is in an outer area, but the gate is wide and large and big, and inside the gated area in the courtyard Jesus is being arraigned by the authorities. And there is a sense in which both of these figures in this passage this evening, both of them, Jesus and Peter, are on trial. Raymond Brown puts it like this. Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Peter cowers before his questioner and denies everything. So there is, a, there is in this story a number of things that emerge. There's apparent failure, real weakness, and true strength. Let's look at those three things together. There's apparent weakness. So in verse 12, a band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is almost an anticlimax to what we've been reading in the earlier part of John 18, when the group of men, perhaps as many as a thousand, certainly no fewer than 600, come looking for Jesus with their lanterns and their torches and their spears and their swords. 
their determination was to shock and awe the disciples and to arrest Jesus. And yet, no sooner have they arrived when Jesus confirms his identity, we saw this whole crowd of people, as it were, taken aback, literally taken aback. They fall over one another as the impact of what Jesus' claim hits them. I am, he said, and they're decimated by those words, those words of self-identification by none other than the God of Israel. So, so after we've read that, it comes as, as I said, an anticlimax now to read that Jesus is now manhandled, bound, and led away to trial. He who came to set people free is now bound by them. And there's an interesting connection here, a connection that is actually signaled to us in the text. In the text, the high priest Caiaphas is introduced by words that we have read already in John's gospel, in which Caiaphas had said to the uh, gathered uh, assembly of the Sanhedrin, as they're talking about the Jesus problem, one man must die for the people. It's Passover. It's appropriate that just as the Passover lamb was killed so that Israel might be free of its enemies, one man must die for the people. John inserts that in the text here, and he does so deliberately, because since the very beginning of this gospel, twice in chapter 1, Jesus has been identified with the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thinking about the Passover lamb. And this theme of Passover has recurred again and again and again. The idea of the Passover. Jesus is either at Passover, going to Passover, around Passover. This point is repeatedly made throughout the gospel until chapter 12 when we're told that this is the Passover. This is the hour appointed by his father. And uh, in chapter 17, when Jesus occupies the role of the great high priest and he's praying for his own people, those that he's called out of the world to himself, he takes the role of the, the high priest in setting apart, sanctifying the sacrificial victim ahead of the sacrifice. And in that great high priestly prayer in chapter 17, Jesus says, for their sakes, I sanctify, I consecrate, I set myself apart to be the sacrifice. So with all of that information in our minds then, we come to read these words and the deliberate emphasis on the language of Jesus being bound. Just as the Passover lamb was bound before it was sacrificed, now the lamb of God is bound and led away to be readied for slaughter. In other words, right at the very beginning as we're reading this, we're being reminded that this evil that is about to occur is not outside the bounds of God's control or God's will. That God overrules evil to serve his own purposes. That is not to say that that negates human responsibility. 
Six weeks later, so Peter would stand up on the day of Pentecost and he would say to the gathered people of Jerusalem, you, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death. You were responsible. These wicked men who actually did it were responsible. You all put Jesus to death. And yet he is also able to say, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The bound Jesus highlights a problem for us as believers. For often we find ourselves from time to time in our lives, in our human experience, in the position of recognizing or seeing or observing the the apparent weakness of God. When evil triumphs, when sin abounds, when heaven is silent, when some healing doesn't come, when victory is not given, when we hear the oaths and curses of daily speech, we see the deconstruction job being done in our faith by the popular media. We read of the struggle of fellow believers in difficult places. We're overwhelmed by the sound and fury of the enemies of God's Christ on every side. And then now try to imagine the disciples watching Jesus, God the Son, being hurled off by the soldiers, hurried away by them, pushing him, jostling him, mocking him as they led him away. And of course, as in the case of Jesus, we have to say that in the case of the world, today, the victory of the world over God's Christ is always more apparent than it is real. The language of Psalm 2 came to the minds of the early Christians when they reflected on their experience before the resurrection, as they reflected on their experience back then and then as they were themselves being persecuted. They remember the language of Psalm 2 that begins with the nations raging and the peoples plotting and the kings of earth setting themselves and the rulers taking counsel together just as the Sanhedrin did against the Lord and against his anointed. And that psalm ends, he who sits in the heavens laughs at them The Lord holds them in derision. There is, as we begin this evening, apparent failure in this passage. There is also, secondly, real weakness in this passage. Here we move now. Screen goes back. Meanwhile, back at Jesus. Oh, sorry, back back at Peter. We've seen Jesus arrested, bound. Now we look at Peter. Betrayal is an ugly word. I wonder if you've experienced it in your life. Maybe you remember the class bully approaching you at school as you stand, stood there with your friends and he's coming for you and your friends disappear and leave you to face him alone. Perhaps a trusted colleague at work went behind your back uh, to promote their own chances of promotion or job security. You were sidelined, perhaps you even lost your job. Worst of all, perhaps a loved one has betrayed your trust that you placed in them. Political, professional, personal betrayal is part of human experience. 
And the betrayal of Jesus is an essential part of the human story, but it's also an essential part of Jesus' story. To his disciples, it was it seemed an impossible, inconceivable thing to them. When Jesus, on, uh, on the night he was betrayed, in fact, that's how we remember the night that Jesus was crucified, the night that he broke bread. We're going to, in a moment, remember that when he broke bread, it was the night on which he was betrayed. And on that night, he predicted his betrayal. As he, had done, as he had done before. And Peter was one of those of his disciples who said, yeah, it's not going to happen. That's not just not going to happen. The story of Peter, as we read it here, is told by one of the several eyewitnesses to the details. John refers here to the other disciple in verse 15. That other disciple is likely John himself who was present and who lets, Jesus, uh, lets Peter in nearer to the fire. Now let's remember who Peter was. Peter is an intimate disciple of Jesus, called in the earliest days. Peter is the one of whom Jesus said, his name is Peter, he is the rock. On this rock of his profession, I will build my church. You, you name it, Peter had been there. When Jesus turned the water into wine, Peter was there. When the nets were full, so full of fish, this miraculous catch of fish, Peter had been there and had been one of those dragging in that great catch of fish. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured, before them, when something of his essential inner glory shone through the veil of his humanity and the voice of God in heaven and the transfiguration of the sun was taking place and Moses and Elijah were seen speaking with him about the exodus that was to accomplish, be accomplished in Jerusalem by his death as the sacrificial lamb and the victory and liberty that that would bring to people across the world. Peter was there. And saw his glory. And he writes about it later on in life. He writes about the fact that we were eyewitnesses of his glory. When Jesus fed the 10,000 and then the 4,000, the 5,000 plus, by the way, uh, probably around 10,000 people, Peter was there. Peter had seen the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the paralyzed dance, and the dead rise. In fact, for three years, Peter walked so closely behind Jesus that if Jesus stopped on the road, Peter would have gone right into him. He was always there or thereabouts. He's the one who was foolish enough to pack a light weapon. He was carrying the night Jesus was arrested. And yet as we follow the story here, and as... Peter is let into the closer circle nearer the fire as he is going through the door. The servant girl at the door, verse 17, said to Peter, you, you, you also aren't one of these disciples of Jesus, are you? And the rock turns to jelly and the confessing disciple becomes a denying coward 
And if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to any one of us. Now, John does not try to psychoanalyze Peter's mindset through all of this. But there are some lessons I think we can learn about Peter's failure if we just look at this and the other Gospels. I think the first thing to say about Peter is that he was overconfident. Again and again, Peter said something like this to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, will you, Peter? Before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me. On another occasion, he said to Jesus, even if all fall away on account of me, I never will. They might, but I won't. They might deny you, desert you, disown you. I will. And he was being as sincere as he knew how when he said that. He did not reckon, however, with his own human weakness. And when it came to the night he was betrayed, in that garden, when the soldiers, the arresting officers came with their torches and swords in massive numbers to shock and awe, he wasn't afraid. He drew his little dagger as he stood next to Jesus, ready to take them on because he felt invulnerable while he was standing next to Jesus. He'd done that once before, by the way. He saw Jesus walking on the water and he said, bid me come to you. And out he went and he walked on the water towards Jesus. And he looked down and he began to sink. While he was in the garden standing next to Jesus, he felt like Superman. But not now. Not now that his master is bound and seems unable to help himself. And when the gate is opened by this servant girl, he is thrown into a panic. You don't belong to Jesus lot, the Jesus lot, do you? And the answer he gives is this. Of course not. Dismissive. Of course not. Right now, when we live in our time, being associated with Jesus seems unfashionable against our best interests. Every man or woman reading this story here gets the point. Every believer has been here at some point. You don't believe in that kind of thing, do you? Uh, What were you doing yesterday morning or evening? Well, I had a great time in the shops in the afternoon. We went in for a nice lunch or brunch. Some of us think we can take the world on, play the world at its own game and win, but we haven't noticed the little compromises we have dug as a pit for ourselves. We do it gradually as we distance ourselves from Jesus and his people, as much by our silence as by our explicit denials. Peter was overconfident. And Peter had failed to pray. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus had earlier called on them to watch and pray with him. The gospel writers tell us that to a man they fell asleep. While Jesus agonized in the garden, they napped. And how often we walk into temptation, we walk into harm's way, we go in with utter confidence in our own powers of resistance 
but we don't cast ourselves on God. We don't pray. And then thirdly, Peter was left standing with the enemy. Look at verse 16, verse 18, verse 25. Peter was also with them standing and arming himself. In verse 5, this was said about Judas. Judas, when the arresting officers came, Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. And by his denial of Jesus, he put himself in the same place as Judas on the side of Christ's enemies. If you're not for me, Jesus said, you're against me. Whoever is not for me is against me. Peter is putting himself there. He's putting himself in that place that Psalm 1 talks about as it describes the downward progression of a person who walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners. Here is Peter standing in the way of sinners. The story of Peter's betrayal and denial exposes something about us all. It is this, that we underestimate the darkness of our fallen human hearts We don't realize what we're capable of. And like Peter, we may profess loudly our love and loyalty to Jesus. And we no doubt mean it from the very bottom of our hearts. But we must be very careful not to put our confidence in our own strength of character. We must be careful that we don't think that somehow or other, just by saying it, that it is so. We must always be guarding our hearts. Well, the third thing we see in this passage, the third element we see here is when we go back now to Jesus. And here we find Jesus before Annas, this figure called Annas, who is mentioned here, or Anas. Uh, He is a bit of a character, this man. In Jewish law, the high priest was appointed for life, and Annas had been high priest from about the year 6, between 6 and 15 AD. So that's a long time. We're now about the year AD 30. Between 6, sorry, between 6 and the year 15, he had been in power and had been deposed by the Romans in 15. That obviously annoyed the Jewish population. They continued to call him the high priest because he was a high priest for life. And from that point on, the Romans made sure that the office was held for shorter terms. Well, Anas was a bright man. He made sure that if he could not actually hold the keys of the office rather than just have the title by popular demand, he would not slink into quiet retirement. And so no fewer than five of his sons, a grandson, and now a son-in-law, were high priests. Annas was the kingmaker, or he was more properly, more exactly, the high priest maker. He was the power behind the throne, which is why sometimes you read about Annas being called the high priest and Caiaphas being called the high priest. It isn't that there's a mistake. Both of those things were true. Now, Annas was not at all popular among the people. In fact, he was so hated by the Jews that they used his name as slang 
for donkey dung. Uh, there's a passage in the Jewish Talmud which says, which reads like this: "Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpents hiss! They are high priests; their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves." Annas had make a, made a pile of money. He controlled the, the concessions in the temple property. In fact, he turned the temple complex into a theme park. When people came to worship there, they had to pay their temple tax. Before you could get in, you paid the temple tax. You came with your local money or your Roman coinage, but you had to exchange Roman coinage for temple coinage before you could pay the entrance fee. So very conveniently, there was a currency exchange there where you could exchange your real money for temple money in order to gain access into the temple to worship God. Annas owned the currency exchange. Now, you came there, of course, to worship, and in those days, you came to worship by having uh, an animal or, or something else for a sacrifice. And before you could offer that as a sacrifice, you had to have it checked. You had to have to check for imperfections, or if it didn't pass inspection, then you could not use it for worship. Well, very conveniently, Anacodon organized a bunch of inspectors. They met you when you arrived after you'd paid your temple tax, exchanged your money at a, a, a high interest rate, and then paid your temple tax when you'd actually got into the outer elements of the temple. You then had to face the inspectors, and they would check your lamb or your turtle dove or your pigeon. And if they found some defect, which they inevitably did, they were able to point you in the direction of some stalls over here where you could purchase, for the temple money, of course, you could purchase a lamb or a turtle dove or a pigeon at exorbitant prices, of course, inside the theme park. As you know, that's still the case today. Uh, you could go there and you could pay for them and buy them there. Now, now you understand why it was that twice in Jesus' ministry, at the beginning and the ending, he'd gone into the temple, or should we say into Annas' bazaar, and had whipped the people out of there and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. It's very interesting. And when they arrest Jesus, they take him to Annas. This was personal for Annas. And there are a number of uh, illegalities, therefore, in the arrest and trial of Jesus. In Jewish law, one was not permitted to question the defendant directly. It was required that there be character witnesses who spoke on his behalf, and so there would be a questioning of the character witnesses. You ask them what you need to know about the defendant. And then there would be witnesses for the, for the prosecution. They would, be, they would be introduced. They would be interrogated. We find all of that procedure is put to one side and ignored. They begin by questioning Jesus. And Annas and his position, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, represent Israel as a nation. Israel, to whom the promise of the Messiah was given. 
Here is the Messiah standing in front of them, but instead of welcoming him, they're threatened by his influence, they're offended by his claims, and they want to eradicate him. Against that background then, we find Jesus, the faithful witness. Annas asks him a question about his theology. The high priest asked him about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus, the faithful witness, responds to this and raises some questions about the protocol of the trial. Jesus answered him, there's no mystery to what I teach. I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. In other words, you could have asked thousands of people what I teach. It's public knowledge. You've been in the audience and listened in the background. Everybody knows that. You've all heard what I teach. Why are you asking me all of this? I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said. They know what I said. Those are the people you should have brought in here as witnesses. That is the technically legal thing you should have done. Brought in witnesses. Where are the people who've been listening to Jesus? Let's ask them what he's been teaching. You have been acting illegally. He bears witness, in other words, to the truth. Jesus stands for the truth. Meanwhile, back at the fireside, Peter denies Jesus two more times, just as the Lord had predicted he would. It is a stunning, terrible record of humiliating failure. Peter is not a faithful witness. Jesus is a faithful witness. He stands for the truth. Jesus I am, when they come to arrest him, remember? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I, I am. The girl says to Peter, you're not one of his disciples, are you? I am not. And then as she asks him the same question again, and then again, I am blank, 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 not. The sky is turning blue, not. I am most definitely not. Absolutely not. Totally, completely, utterly, I don't even know the man. Have you denied the Lord Jesus? Denied did you know him? Maybe you were embarrassed. Maybe you were taken off guard. You identify with Peter here, not with Jesus. But you know, in the Bible, there is a massive difference between Judas and Peter. We're going to see why, how that demonstrates itself some other time. But for this evening, let me just put it like this. Judas and Peter do the same thing. Judas and Peter both deny Jesus. Judas and Peter both disown Jesus. Judas does it as a hard-hearted unbeliever. Peter does it as a weak believer. And for Peter, his failure 
is not final. Some of you can testify to that. You've failed in your life, perhaps, and you've come to this church, you've you've snuck in here, perhaps, because you're not known. You sneak in, you sneak out. You come in order to lick your wounds a bit, to regain something of your integrity, to allow the Word of God to wash over you and cleanse you and restore you and renew you like ointment on open wounds. As in Peter's case, your story isn't finished yet. At the time, on the surface, it looked as if Peter's threefold denial is an unmitigated disaster. And yet his failure was not outside the will of God. God didn't choose Peter and save Peter because he thought he would be a great guy. Jesus had told Peter, Back in chapter 13, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Or in Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. God chose Peter, knowing all about him, If you're a believer, God chose you knowing all about you. Not only your past before you became a Christian, but your present. He knew it all. He knows it all. And Christ is in control even of this. And he would use this for Peter's good and for other people's good. I just want to say to you this evening, if you're struggling with the pain of failure, it isn't over until it's over. And if you feel a failure and if you're covered in shame as Peter was when he heard that cock crow and snuck away in utter disgrace into the darkness, when he remembered Jesus' word and when he caught Jesus' eye, God is not finished with you yet. He may not use you the way he did before. Sometimes we have to live with the consequences of our actions. But we may still be of service to him before we hear him call us home or call us up to the skies on the last day. Peter had wanted to follow Jesus. In other words, he wanted to die with Jesus or for Jesus. But he can't do that. He can't do that until Jesus has died for him. There would come a day when Peter would die, crucified upside down, because he was unworthy, he said, to die the same way up as Jesus died. There are three men in this part of the story, Jesus, Peter, and Annas. And of these three, the official representative of the Jewish religion, the official leader of the band of the disciples, of these three, only Jesus is the faithful witness. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Later on in Revelation, he is called the faithful and true word of God. And here we need to remember the reason for Peter's denial. 
Because in his mind, he could not believe that the cross was necessary. In his mind, he could not understand how the self-humiliation and the self-offering of Jesus to death fitted into the purposes of God. Peter had to learn that we have only one Savior, one Lord, one sin-bearer, one friend. And he had to learn the lesson that you and I need to learn, that the Apostle Paul summarizes in these words, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is all our hope and plea. We need to have Jesus not only standing in for us and standing firm for us, we need to keep our eyes on him. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts. And if we're struggling with our own failures or weaknesses, we pray that you would, for every look at ourselves, give us a hundred looks to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.